Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and uh, it's just me again this week. But boy, do we have a fantastic guest for you. We had on Zach Slayback, who's a dear friend of our organization and this show, and we had a fantastic discussion. But before I get to that, I uh, wanted to talk about a couple of uh, big announcements. Um, well, a couple things. First of all, uh, if you write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcast and you submit it to us over email, um, uh, email podcast at AmericanMoment.org, you will be entered into a raffle to get uh, one of these custom American Moment shirts. And I'm going to try and put this up to the camera if you're just listening in. Uh, you can see, but it just has a very subtle American Moment logo on the front uh, and then the full one on the back. Um, we'll give away three of these over the next couple of weeks, and we'll just kind of randomly give them out to people who submit the reviews. But submit a five-star review if you have a question in there. We'll gladly answer it on the show as well. We're creeping up on 100 reviews and really trying to chase that, so hence the giveaway. Um, and uh, it's a fantastic shirt, you know, made in the USA, very high quality. We we splurge on these because we don't, uh, we don't sell merch typically. Um, however, that might change with the other announcement that I have, which is that uh, we're actually doing another big party in Washington here. Uh, on October 8th, we're doing a, a party called Party Hard and Carry a Big Stick. It's going to be themed around Teddy Roosevelt. We're going to have custom merch, shirts, campfire mugs. Um, it's going to be a blast. We've done a couple of these uh, before. The first few we did were completely private, invite only. We sold a few tickets to the last one just to uh, feel it out, and people seem to have a fantastic time. It'll be about 250, 300 people there, and uh, and you can come and hang out with the American Moment team. We usually have a couple of VIPs there as well, uh, and you can sort of get to know and be part of the broader community that we have here in D.C. I'm uh, going to throw up uh, the graphic for the event here. Again, all those details. It's at 6 p.m. on October 8th. It's going to be on Capitol Hill at the Conservative Partnership, and you can uh, purchase a ticket at, at the Eventbrite link for it, which we'll have in the description below on YouTube and Facebook, uh, Twitter, etc. So be sure to check that out. Uh, it's going to be a really good time, and uh, and you'll get to meet um, the broader community that American Moment has here in Washington. But uh, without further ado, our guest this week is Zach Slayback, who's a principal at the 1517 Fund, a venture capital fund that uh, focuses on dropouts, renegades, and deep tech scientists. Uh, Zach is just an awesome, fantastic, brilliant guy. We've been fans of his for a long time. He was early on the idea that college is one giant scam. And so we talk about that. We talk about credentialing in American society. We talk about what's wrong with our elites, what the hell happened in 1971, uh, and so much more. It's a really fun episode. I think it's a cool contrast with the episode we had Last week, we had on a college president last week, and we have a college dropout this week. But you'll find that actually a lot of the themes that they're talking about are the same, and a lot of their diagnoses for what's wrong with modern American higher education are the same as well. Um, Zach's a great follow on Twitter as well. Be sure to do that um, and and stick all the way to the end because, again, Zach is uh, full of knowledge bombs uh, pretty regularly. And so we had a fantastic episode with him, and we'll go now to Zach Slayback. Fancy little motion with the spoon that is harder than it looks. So come at me, noobs. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh... Zach, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be on the podcast. Can't say the same about Bugman Central. Well, but I, somehow we managed to drag you to Washington D.C. I, I was never really convinced this would happen, but it did, and we're, we're very and, glad. You've been able to do it twice now. I know. Which I know. Is, uh, a I, record. I would say it speaks well to me, but reality, it's it's your bride to be that has dragged you here on multiple yeah, occasions. Yeah, I know. No, I mean it was more. 
the first time was actually you. I will give you that credit. Yeah. The second time is yes, uh, obligations. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I I never understand conservative organizations being here. Like, mm-hmm. aren't you supposed to be the voice of the American people? Shouldn't mm-hmm. you be in like Dallas yeah. or like Topeka <laughs> or like Tulsa or something? Well, if anyone would like to offer me property out in any of those cities, I'm more than happy to. I know move people it. <laughs> in Dallas who every time someone complains on Twitter about any of the blue states, they're like, move to Dallas. Yeah, move to Texas. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, a lot of what we do is dealing with the bug men in this town, mm. namely in those white buildings uh, over yonder. Um, Zach, uh, tell us, you're, you're a little bit different than a lot of the guests we've had on our show. We tend to have people who specialize in bug manism as their, yep. as their primary occupation. You, on the other hand, are an investor, a venture capitalist. What do those words mean and how do you get to the point uh, where you are today? Yeah, I'm, I'm a principal at a venture capital firm uh, called 1517 Fund. Uh, we're a small firm, you know. We only manage about, as of right now, about eighty million dollars, which in the VC world is small. Uh, we really focus on super early stage people, so it's really talent identification, right? And I would say, even in my history of my career thus far, that is really the thing I focus on: is finding really outstanding people early in their careers, and finding some kind of way of supporting them. Uh, I joined the investment team here a few years ago. My my colleagues are actually the several of the co-founders of the Teal Fellowship Program. So it's kind of comes out of that world. But our focus is finding really outstanding young people early in their careers or unacknowledged talent, typically outside of your tracked institutions like the universities and backing them before anybody else really willing to back them. So that's a lot of, you know, technically if you look on LinkedIn, uh, which is the worst social media platform. <laughs> as, as satanic as Twitter is, somehow LinkedIn is 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 the worst platform. Uh-huh. You're on both. And I am on both. <laughs> as of right now, I, I, I consider myself successful the day that I can delete my LinkedIn profile and not have a second thought about it. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who did that. And I'm like, wow, that's a really great yeah. like bar of success. Yeah. But if you look like look on my LinkedIn profile, technically it says the category is um, venture capital and private equity and like finance, mm-hmm. right? And super, super early on, venture, the kind that we do, is much more like talent identification. It's much more like an art. You see thousands of data points and patterns start to emerge. And you're able to say, wow, this person reminds us of this person that we've seen who is really successful. Or, oh, this person has these certain flags that we've seen that can be a little, uh, you have to be a little trepidatious about, right? So technically, work in finance, right? Uh, more, I like to think of it as uh, talent identification, kind of like a sports recruiter, right? Mm-hmm. The really great sports recruiters, what they do is they go to the, the Friday Night Lights high school football game. And they find the kid who they can tell just by how he moves that by the time he is, you know, 20, he's going to be getting scouted for the NFL, right? And mm-hmm. they track him over years. They get make sure he gets into the right program, uh, that's that's similar, really, to what we do. Yeah, and how does one get to this point in their career? I mean, I think your trajectory is is unique, but but how'd you get there? What did you do before? Uh, I previously was a early founding team member of a startup that helped people who don't have college degrees get jobs that required college degrees. So a lot of the founders we back, given that my colleagues, their background is from the Teal Fellowship Program, which for those who aren't familiar, is a $100,000 grant to drop out of school and uh, go work on a startup or something similar. And I was more on the employee side of that, right? So don't go to school because 
school mostly is a signaling game. It's not really a human capital gain uh, game. There's a lot of decent research on this. If you can still signal a lot of the things that that sheepskin would give you, you're actually able to land jobs much faster. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the thesis that we were working off of. Through that, you know, we got pulled into the the Teal Fellowship orbit, and I ended up meeting the uh, the people who were then running the program. And I, I remember I was in a, a hotel in Nashville, uh, probably in 2014, 2015, when somebody had forwarded me their pitch deck that was starting to make the rounds, right, uh, for what would become 1517 fund. And I kind of told myself that I was like, wow, these people are really on to something. And just kind of, it's a lot of networking, right? Like a lot of people think that networking means either sending horrible, cold LinkedIn messages, right? Or I will not live in a pod. I will not eat the bugs. I will not, I will not not network on LinkedIn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or like going to like schmoozy kind of events, glad handing, right? Really what it is, is, you meet people, you build those relationships, you show them that you're that that you are competent. I, I literally wrote a book on this. You show them that you that you are competent and you identify what are the things that for you are higher value for you to do because they're kind of on the edge of your skills, but they're lower value for these people to do because they're further ahead in their careers, their skills are more developed. And if they had all the time in the world, they would do these things. So for me, what that was was content. Like the GPs, the founders at our fund are uh, very eloquent people who really should make more content. And I identified that early on. I approached them and I said, look, I know you're not raising your second fund yet. Uh, you probably can't hire someone until you raise your second fund. But Michael, you're a great writer. You should be writing more. Danielle, you've got lots of great ideas. Let's spin up a podcast. Let's build out a blog, do all that kind of stuff. And and somehow I ended up doing investments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you end up taking the job that, that comes to you, not necessarily the one you had in mind. Um, you talked about college, so so let's get into college. Um, there are all sorts of terms that are inappropriate for a family-friendly podcast um, that I don't necessarily want blasted all over the internet to get me canceled that I would use to describe our modern state of higher education. I will not. Um, we can put it this way. The, the bugmen love the universities for a reason. They do. And so what's the problem with college? Look, I mean, this is particularly weird for me growing up as an Indian American in the United States, like getting that H on your resume or any college is the name of the game. If you don't go to a fancy school, you don't get the right degrees, you are garbage. And like, it's the thing that I argue most about with my parents. It's something that I've always had a sense of that everything like with our modern higher education system is kind of a scam because basically six months into me starting a biochemistry degree, all of the stuff I was doing and good at and working on had nothing to do with biochemistry. Why is our modern higher education system broken? Yeah, and and I would say real quickly, it's it's not just we see it most pronouncedly often in immigrant families, mm-hmm. right? But even in just normal American boomer families, it seems to be that the name of the game of being a successful parent is getting your kid to college, right? What any other kind of standards that a a healthy society would develop for like what being a good parent means seem to have been sublimated to get your get your kid into the best college they can get into it doesn't matter what kind of debt they have to go into they just need to take out the they need to take out the debt they need to find some kind of way to pay for it to get the sheepskin fundamentally there are a couple debates in what exactly higher education is and i think the most important of those debates is is it a signaling game or a human capital gain game 
And there's a lot of great research on this. Uh, the go-to book is, is Brian Kaplan's The Case Against Education, where he kind of breaks down. If you look at a lot of the data on going to university, people don't really learn all that much. They pretty much only retain that which they use. So if you go get a STEM degree, so often you hear when people talk about higher ed, they'll be like, oh yeah, the liberal arts, of course, waste of time, philosophy, whatever. But you know, a STEM degree, that's, yeah. that's, that's a good use of time. Yeah. I think really what's going on even with that is what you learn in a STEM degree, you're more likely to actually use. And because you're actually going to use it, you're going to retain it. Mm-hmm. And what we what we kind of know from the science of pedagogy and from the study of the economics of higher education you it's a use it or lose it kind of game people really really see this in foreign languages right like i took five years of german six years of german and i can barely speak it right so what you have you have all these young talented people being funneled into a system where they're spending absurd amounts of money to essentially just get something that that tells them that they're able to sit in a seat for four years and do what they're told And for certain kinds of organizations and for certain kinds of goals for those individuals who want to be in those organizations, that can be fine, right? Like if you are AT&T or US Steel or uh, Facebook or whoever, you know, knowing that an employee will sit in their chair for four years and do what they're told is actually great for you because turnover can be very expensive. But if what we're actually concerned about is the skills that somebody learns, especially your top like decile people, and I would say in the field I'm in, I'm really concerned with like, the top percentile people, the real. Uh, yeah, you're operating on power laws. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, I'm not talking about the average person, although I do think for the average person, uh, the university degree has far been oversold as a way for the path to opportunity. Another great bit of research is a, a researcher out of uh, Ohio University, Richard Vetter. He's an economist, and he's kind of looked at this and has shown that if you come from a low income background, going to university doesn't actually help you get to a higher income background, yeah. especially if you have to take out debt. Mm-hmm. But the lie that everybody has been sold is that this is the ticket to a better life. And what we tend to see is it's a ticket to wasting four years for more, for most people. It's simply a filtering mechanism for companies because there really aren't many better filtering mechanisms. And for, I'd say your top quartile of people as far as like conscientiousness, creativity, and intelligence goes, it's a waste of time. And they could be spending their time on much better things. So at the end of the day, like that's a pretty large sunk cost. That's a pretty large negative externality as well to society. And that yeah. says no, that, that's nothing to say about <laughs> if we were to get into the ideological games that are going on at the universities. Right. Like I, my, my complaint about the universities is purely from a goals perspective of the individuals that are fed into it. And from an economics perspective, when I was doing the rounds on university campuses more often, I would often give this talk, essentially telling the students, take a year off. I was really telling them to drop out. <laughs> take a year off. Come in, the water's fine. <laughs> yeah, come in, come in, the water's fine. Like you'll, after a year, you'll get a job. Mm-hmm. And there were two things, that, two stories that really stuck out to me from the, those experiences. The first was, you can go to any university, pretty much any university, and ask a room of 100 students, if you were to learn the things you're learning, meet the people you're meeting, do the activities you're doing, but at the end of the day, you don't get a degree, would you still, and you, you would still pay the money. It's a lot of people, you know, are on financial aid, so same financial cost. Would you still go, right? 
In a room of 100 students, I can tell you like maybe two or three would raise their hands. And those two or three should go become academics. Because fundamentally what we've done yeah. with higher education in the United States is we have taken what is at its core an apprenticeship system for academics and tried to apply it to the general population. And that, of course, you're going to get misalignments <laughs> when, that, when you do that. Yeah. The, other, the other lesson I had was I remember at one point I was in um, a southwestern city and I was meeting with uh, the president of one of the fastest growing companies in the country based on year over year, published year and over year revenue. And this is how I used to get companies signed up to take our people and hire them, right? The, the last company I was working with. And often before I'd go into those meetings, I would ask, I would, I would go on the careers page and look at what the qualifications were that the company needed to hire a more or less entry-level person. This was an ad firm. Uh, so we were looking at like account executives, right? Or account managers. And I do remember seeing on the job posting, you know, a bachelor's degree in advertising, marketing, economics, business management, or equivalent work experience, right? And that was an unusual thing to see at the time. That was maybe circa 2015, maybe 2014. You'll see something like that a lot more often nowadays if there really? isn't, is even an education requirement. But I asked the president of this company, I saw this in your job posting. What do you mean by equivalent work experience? And I, I hadn't been fully red-pilled to the, <laughs> to the state of the misalignment between uh, the real world and, and academia at that point. And I expected him to say, you know, two years, three years, maybe even four years, right? Because it's four. On average, it takes somebody five years in the United States to finish a, a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And do you know how long he told me? It could be high or low. I don't know what the answer is. He, he told me it would be a semester worth of work. Oh He's like, if someone came... <laughs> and I was kind of floored. And I sat back yeah. and, I, and I asked him, I'm like, so you really mean to tell me, you really mean to tell me that of the all the students over at that major state university that I will remain unnamed in mm -hmm. this conversation, that working for you for three or four months is as valuable in your mind as a five, four... Techni technically for often five-year degree. I said, yeah, of course, I can teach them in probably two months everything they need to know that they may or may not pick up over at the university program. And that sentiment is far more common than you would expect, yeah. especially among people who actually have to hire people and then actually have to bear the costs of hiring the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Which when somebody's sitting in like an academic or a policy ivory tower, you don't really see but when you're actually on the ground having to hire people and when you can't hire good people, it either hurts your company or it keeps you from hiring people, which slows down the growth of your company, which hurts your company. So the people who actually have to bear the cost of these things, they can they can see through the sham. They can see through the sham. Unfortunately, the, the talking heads, the ones that have been able to get through to parents over the last couple of decades either don't see through it or are intentionally ignorant yeah. of it. Yeah, so, so this goes back to an earlier point you said about w where the errors are, because there's two sides to this equation, right? There's the value proposition for a student considering going to a four-year university, and and that's a that's an uh, ought question. Uh, you know, it, it talks about value. You can think about values. You can think about um, trade-offs. But, but then there's the is question, which is what does corporate America, where, do the, where the bulk of jobs lie, value? And 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 what's the status quo on that right now? Because the reality is, if the incentives are you can't get a middle class job without this college degree, then 
we can talk about the ought all day long and how college is immoral, it's an indoctrination camp, it's four years of debt, but at the end of the day, if that's the only way people can provide for their family, people are going to make that material calculation. What's the state in corporate America right now? It sounds like in this company, they were more ecumenical, although, again, I bet that in the process of filtering, that guy's going to you know, look at the BA before he's going to look at the or equivalent work experience. Where does the, the status quo sit? Uh, let's bring this down to like the practical level of what I would say to somebody who is trying to make this decision, yeah. right? With this is odd kind of question. What I would tell them is when you identify a job you want to go get, whether it's at a, a, a corporate kind of environment, so let's say greater than 500 employees or it's more SMB. And a, a very large chunk of American employ, uh, employees actually are at SMBs as well, which are actually far more uh, amenable to this kind of situation. What I would tell them is, look, if you're dealing with an HR person in particular, HR people are like, unfortunately, more often than not professionally mediocre, and they're really trying to cap their downside more than anything else. <laughs> so if you're dealing with an HR person, my advice is go directly to the actual hiring manager who tends to be outside of HR, the mm -hmm. person who is going to be your boss if you get, to, if you get hired. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with uh, an organization that doesn't have an HR manager, you're often dealing that's with That's great. That's <laughs> like, great. First of all, that's a, that's yeah. a great sign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, secondly, you should probably, again, either go to your department manager if the company's greater than, I'd say, 50 employees. If it's smaller than 50 employees, you go to the CEO, most likely. And you reach directly out to them and you show them, this is what I will actually do to help your company. And then the resume tends to be an afterthought because the way the way an HR person work, works when they're filtering through resumes, they're really looking for reasons to throw it out, mm -hmm. right? And that sounds harsh, but their job their job is just filtering through a lot of resumes all day. So they're they're going to essentially have uh, you know if then statements in their mind that make it you know whether or not they throw a resume away. If you can get around them, get a referral in, that tends to be really helpful. Uh, you know, some organizations are not amenable to this this proposal of going without the BA at all, that number is increasingly small. And we've seen even organizations like some of the large accounting firms out there, like Ernst & Young, come out and say, this isn't actually a requirement. Now, they often look for some other kind of credential, but whether that's like a, a, a an accounting credential of some kind or the one, one of the few credentials I'm actually a fan of how they go about credentialing, because there's there's a question of higher education as a human capital versus signaling. Then there's the separate question of credentialing, period. Not mm -hmm. all credentialing is necessarily bad. I'm actually a fan more or less of how the, the chartered financial analyst, the CFA, is organized, because it's hard to get. It actually requires you to go through multiple levels of getting it, and you don't necessarily need a bachelor's degree in order to get it. So there are alternative signals people can develop. And that's my, my, my core piece of advice is if you're not going to go get the bachelor's degree, get some kind of alternative signal, whether that's a really fantastic project that you built at your first job, uh, could just be a really, really great referral from your first job, landing a job that really often does require some sort of credential or an alternative credential out there. So if we view higher education fundamentally as a signaling question, I think we are able to decharge this from a normative perspective. We're able to make this much more of a, a level-headed kind of conversation and say, look, the BA or the BS is a very blunt signal. It doesn't really 
communicate that much to employers. It, it, if you're able to signal something more than or more targeted than what that BA or BS does, you'll be golden, right? Mm-hmm. And it's actually not that difficult. That That's really what I would tell this person. Yeah, I mean, we obviously care deeply about this stuff at American Moment, and that's what our fellowship for American Statecraft was for. Like, We had several dropouts that did the program this time around. The idea was we're going to create an alternative credential that is a stand-in for work experience. I, I remember when I first got involved in politics, I took a semester off. I, I checked to see the water. Um, and I was told that working one legislative session in Texas, which is a six-month period, is equivalent to two years of work experience because of how crazy it is, mm. because they only meet for 140 days every two years. And I was like, great. That, that sounds like a great deal for me. I'm going to go do that. And I did. And it was extremely helpful in terms of accelerating my career. There is, I think, a cultural element to this college question, which is that we live in a society now that more and more from the earliest stages of education is built with the expectation that upon finishing high school, you're going to spend four years at a glorified resort. Mm-hmm. And so the question then becomes like, that's what our secondary education is built to as well. And so is someone, is your median person who's graduating from high school at the age of 18, have they been brought up through an education system that's actually preparing them to be an adult? Or what I think, like they, they're going out into a society where adolescence is expected to extend well into your 20s. Um, and again, this is to put aside the question of the top decile that are weird and wonderful. They can do cool stuff. What does the, the median American do when our entire society and education system is built to expect now 16 years of formal schooling you know there's this uh at this point kind of not contrarian but there's this famous contrarian question from peter Thiel. Right? Like, <laughs> what's one very important truth you believe that very few people agree with you on mm-hmm. or some version of that one of my colleagues who who worked at peter's hedge fund before he helped launch the fellowship his answer is that child labor is good <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're absolutely right. We, we've lived in a society in, in, where we have extended adolescence, I would say, into your mid-20s, mm-hmm. if not even later, especially because now you see more and more of these bug people jobs. Bug people aren't purely people in Washington. They're bug, <laughs> they're bug people everywhere. They yeah. tend to be on the coasts. Uh, but these bug people jobs tend to be very credential heavy. And so you'll see the old joke is uh, that you need a master's degree in order to get an entry-level job, yeah. right? Or for the entry-level job, you need like four years of work experience. (laughs) Something like that, right? That's the old joke. And this was a problem I ran into a lot when I was doing a lot of the recruiting for the the previous company. And I found that uh, the two best signals of like groups for to find young people, and maybe they are weird, I wouldn't call them necessarily by definition top decile, although a lot of them are, were homeschoolers Mm -hmm. and people who worked at Chick-fil-A in high school. <laughs> so why did you repeat yourself just now? <laughs> right, right. Often, often they were the same, yeah. but not always. Yeah. Uh, so these people were often a lot more mature. They had gone through the obligatory four-year maturation period. I actually think that the four-year maturation period of the glorified, you know, $100,000 resort that is the university is probably one of the better arguments for university. We have developed a society, unfortunately, that has extended adolescence well past when it's supposed to end. It's probably supposed to end like 14, 15 years old. Then people get jobs, right? Yeah. Or they specialize. They specialize in some Or historically kind of speaking, they like become soldiers. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and like exactly. have children. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So 
we've extended adolescence so far. This was one of the problems that we would run into where I was, I would, was dealing with people right out of high school. And if they weren't already very mature, they kind of had to go through a maturation period. That was, I think it was just a function of age, uh, not necessarily a function of anything the university does. In a certain sense, the university does allow this like cordoned off part of the world where you can go be a stupid idiot for four years and it won't like destroy you. Mm-hmm. And the real world isn't quite like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that's more of a fundamental problem, I think, with K-12 education, which we can talk about industrialized K-12 education, the management yeah, prisons. society. <laughs> right? I mean, a lot of the architects, a lot of the architecture firms that build minimum security prisons also build uh, elementary and middle schools. I'm sure it's so, fine. <laughs> like you not, sound like a conspiracy theorist. Zach. Right, right, right. I, I, I sound like a conspiracy theorist. But yeah, we, we've extended adolescence well into the 20s. I think that it doesn't necessarily need to take four years, but the, the the quicker we can accelerate that. So job work experience is great. Co-op programs are great. Some of the universities I am more of a fan of, they're either highly, highly specialized or they have work experience built into the university programs mm-hmm. like Drexel University does this. College of the Ozarks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The universities like this, I think that's helpful to help people mature and learn a lot of those skills. I don't think it needs to be done in a five-year university degree environment though. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get into some of the applications where higher education would be necessary. I mean, we need doctors, need lawyers is an interesting statement. I don't know that we need them, but you need you need people who are credentialed in a specific way to do highly specialized professions. How does that fit into your theory? Like if you were creating an education system from scratch, which I'd be the first to vote for you to be czar. Um, how would you reconcile that part? For instance, I lived in India for a couple of years. Uh, in India, in order to become a doctor, your bachelor's degree is one year. Mm-hmm. And it's actually like a bachelor's in medicine. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get your your MD equivalent for the next four years. You're in five as opposed to eight. And all the residencies and everything are attenuated as well. And they're much better at creating doctors. Um, how, how do you reconcile these, these very high skill professions? Yeah, so I would, there's a couple of things I want to parse apart here. So we're like really clear in our terms because I think people will talk about these things without actually being clear on what they're trying to achieve. And I'm not saying that you're you're doing this, but this often happens in these conversations. Again, credentialing is a separate question than university credentialing. I actually think these are different things. Up until relatively recently, you actually could get admitted to medical school without a bachelor's degree. Uh, so I think, for example... I think Rand, Senator Rand Paul actually does not did not finish his bachelor's degree nice. before getting, before getting in, uh, go, going to yeah. medical school. This is right? still the case with uh, pharmacists. Okay. Um, yeah, you you don't need your uh, BA to go. You just need to finish your pharmacy prerequisites. Right. Um, and at one point, this was also the way with the JD as yeah. well. So, I if you actually dig into how getting passing the bar exam works, getting uh, joining your medical boards and. Uh, actually going through the process of becoming a doctor works. A lot of these high skill professions, accounting even, they're actually apprenticeship systems and they have credentialing built into them. But that undergraduate degree isn't a necessary component by the nature of how the apprenticeship system works. More often than not, what you see is the undergraduate degree develops as a way from kind of a public choice perspective for the cartel, which might be the AMA or the, uh, the bar association, to limit the number of new entrants into the market, right? So if I were designing this from the ground up, 
realistically, like medical school, law school, et cetera, would probably look pretty similar to how they look now because doctors essentially go through an apprenticeship program after learning a, a lot of more or less practical education that they didn't necessarily get in their undergrad, right? The undergrad is just a way of like getting people out from yeah. going to medical school. The There's a lot of 18 year old Indian kids like me that want to be doctors and we need to get them to disabuse themselves of that notion <laughs> first and then they can go to med school. Yeah, no, I, I, what I would, if I were designing this all from the ground up, look, academia uh, fundamentally started as three things, a, a clerical system. So a lot of the universities started as Harvard, seminaries Yale, yeah. or, or as theological schools. Uh, a academic apprenticeship system for like very specific kind of academics who would be doing research fundamentally or as an elite finishing school, right? And my more or less theory on, on what happened where everything kind of went wrong was post-World War II, post-Korea, you had the GI Bill. People were fundamentally mimetic. They imitate others. They look to others to see what they should do. People came back from these wars they thought, okay, I need to provide well for my family. What do all the people who are successful do? Well, they wear suits and they go to offices and they have degrees. And some people started doing this. They started taking advantage of the GI Bill. So often there is a policy element in here, right, that pushes people people's incentives one way or the other. They took advantage of the GI Bill and they went and they got these degrees. And then if you're a hiring manager, you need to filter through applicants. Well, you previously required a high school diploma. Now you have to require a college degree to just filter through the number of applicants you're getting, right? This is a similar effect that you see where a lot of these larger corporations may require a master's degree in order to do what is more or less an entry-level is, job. Is that real? Like, is that actually happening now? Like straight up entry-level positions, people require master's I remember degrees. seeing this a couple of years ago at uh, JetBlue, right? Where really? I, where they were, they were hiring like a marketing associate and they wanted a master's degree. <laughs> so it's unfortunately one of these things that you'll see often in these like very, very large corporations. And even then still... The, the requirements are often requirements with air quotes around them. If you just get to the right economic buyer at the end of the day, I'd say nine times out of 10, you can work your way to an interview at a, at a minimum. One of the founders we backed, for example, he uh, was an ad executive for years and never actually finished his bachelor's degree and actually went to a uh, an executive education program that requires a bachelor's degree and they just waived it, right? Yeah. Or I have, a, I have another friend who he was in the final stage of an interview for an analyst job at a hedge fund, and he told them, like, well, I don't have a degree. And they're like, oh, it, it's fine. Some of the guys on the team, you know, they only have an MBA. Not all of them have PhDs, right? And he's like, <laughs> I don't have a bachelor's degree. <laughs> they were a little taken aback, and I think at the end of the day, they actually did end up hiring him. And again, he's one of these higher tier weirdos, but these things can be done for people, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about that's a PhD level job. So you right. have to be a higher tier weirdo often to get around those kinds of requirements. So you kind of have this mimetic effect in the 50s, 60s that end up diluting the value of the diploma as a signal, which then required the degree as a signal. And now we're at this point where we're at this, what I think is a breaking point where you have either the diploma, you have either the degree as a signal or an alternative signal, or you can keep adding graduate degrees on top of that. But you can't have people starting entry level jobs at thirty one. That mm -hmm. just it's not a good way to build a healthy society where people can have families, yeah. right? So that's what happened. Now, if I were designing it from the ground up, yeah, the trade schools would more or less look like trade schools, uh, medical school, uh, law school, things like that. 
at their core, they're trade schools. We can mm-hmm. call them professional schools, but they're really trade schools. Mm-hmm. They're apprenticeship systems, seminary, similar kind of thing. Uh, business school probably shouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> ban business school. Yeah, ban, ban business school. That will school. be my that, first that, decree. That, that'd be a good, uh, yeah. a good bumper sticker. My sister sticker. actually just started business school. Oh, man. I'll pray for her. BBA, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> so you'd more or less allow some sort of maturation period in which people would be expected to go do some kind of apprenticeship. So my advice, realistically, to parents tends to be, and to young people in high school, take a gap year. Get into, if, if you're on the college track, get into the best university you can get into weighted for financial aid. And then once you get in, tell them you want to take a gap year. The vast majority of the universities, especially the elite universities actually love this because students who take a gap year and then come back to do their degree are more likely to finish, which improves their U.S. News and World Report rankings, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Is that the second thing you'd ban after? The U.S. (laughs) News and World Report? (laughs) I mean, people, I mean, I think if I were to say one thing that I wish the conservative conservatives in general but especially we can say like the new right kind of conservatives would pay more attention to is kind of like public choice economics Mm -hmm. the incentive systems that people follow people will game any kind of system that you put in front of them Mm -hmm. right u.s news and world report is a great example of this the elite universities what they do is they pay firms to send out solicitations to students that they know they're not going to accept because that actually improves their acceptance rate, right? Yeah. If you know, if you get, the, there's two ways you can improve an acceptance rate. You can accept fewer students or you can get more students to apply and accept the same number of students. And the way these universities have done it, they've been caught doing it. The Ivies in particular will do this. They solicit students they know are not going to get in to apply and then they reject them because it <laughs> helps their US News and World Report rankings. Yeah. People will game any system they're in. My recommendation is, Expose people to the real world as soon as possible. At least then they'll learn what they actually want to do, what they don't want to do. And then they can go, if they want to go get that that degree, you know, as a, a liberal arts education or as a four-year vacation or as a trade, great, they can go get it. I can tell you in the founders we back, which are, you know, yeah, the top decile, if not even higher than that kind of weirdos. The ones we tend to be really impressed by are ones who got some weird work experience somewhere along the way. Even if it was during the summer or if it was while they were in school, they have some weird niche interest that a lot of people don't develop until they're like 25 and then they have bills and all these other kinds of things that make it hard for them to pursue their interests. Yeah. Um, It's such an interesting thing, right? Because the status quo in american life has has these enormous cultural influences where like going to college is the only way you're considered like a person in good standing um it's it's deeply destructive i think but at the end of the day i I think that because trust in institutions is so low across the board in american society there is an opportunity here to make college yet another institution in which trust is low um do you, do you think that there's an opportunity there? I mean, in general, do you think that skepticism of college on either end of the equation, uh, it sounds like you're saying there is more corporate skepticism than there once was on the student side. I mean, aren't more kids applying to college every year? Maybe COVID was a blip in the road. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly trends in the direction where it's like, okay, more people are applying to school. That doesn't necessarily, again, mean that they should be going to school, right? <laughs> and often this tends to be where things get disjointed is the education at the K-12 level, guidance counselors, you know, 
there are some great ones out there. God That's the third them. thing you'd ban is guidance counselors. But they're 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 <laughs> often they're like K twelve HR people. Yeah. Right. And they have which just as an aside, I've had this bit for a long time. Anyone who complains about like industrial policy, they're like, we shouldn't have this. Like we have industrial policy in society, in American society. It's for like wash out like crappy English majors to go be HR representatives at every institution in American life. That's our industrial policy. We empower the most mediocre, irritating people to essentially rule us. Like yeah. in anyway. Yeah, we're, we, we are unfortunately uh, ruled by the, the most mediocre among us. I think that's the thing that makes me like so resentful at times to the current <laughs> system. It's like if I were actually ruled by my betters, you know, maybe I take a step back yeah. and be like, okay. Appreciation for hierarchy is a right wing value at the end of the day. Like I just want it to be proven to me. I don't want to be ruled by like Kamala Harris. Like, come <laughs> on, man. Like it's just like very silly. Yeah, right, exactly. Glorified HR people. And so a, a lot of the the market pressures, if we want to call them that, or even I would just call them like eschatological pressures for the individual. Because I think at the end of the day, good education isn't merely about what the market wants. It's what what's going to prepare you, you know, market wise, skill wise, but also spiritually values wise and all these other things to be in like physical skills wise to be a good person and i think from the perspective of policy it can be to be a good citizen and you can't have a society that's run by a bunch of like glorified hr people (laughs) it's not a healthy way to run any kind of country so Again, I, I think it's just a it's an element of just how disjointed things are between the K twelve level, the parenting level, and the we we can call it the real world level. You know, parents for years and years and years, again, they have come to view getting their student into the best university possible as the declaration that they are a good parent. The thing every parent wants, yes, is that on their on their like crossover the like harvard university <laughs> sticker right across the top right? That's, right that's what every parent wants they consider themselves a successful parent mm-hmm. whether or not their child who's now a, 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 an adult is you know depressed or actually has skills or is completely like adrift in this ocean of nothingness bearing on to nothing to to rip from uh, cardinal ratzinger right <laughs> so I, I think that's just a, an element of just how disjointed the real world is from the rest of the world. Now, that being said, when I started talking on this this bit, if we want to call it that, it was probably like 2012, almost a decade ago. And going up against the university was kind of a crazy stance to take, right? People would look at me kind of weird and be like, well, the only other, the only people kind of saying this kind of thing tend to be like crazy people and, <laughs> and like Peter Thiel, which some people consider this yeah yeah <laughs> you repeat yourself yeah right right uh and now I, I i have these conversations pretty much at any level whether it's with parents or if it's with educators or it's with people in the workforce and it's almost anodyne like it's something it's, it's one of these secrets that everybody actually knows but mm-hmm. doesn't want to necessarily openly acknowledge because i think there are a couple psychological effects going on here no one wants to feel like their degree was a mistake no one wants to feel like they're a bad parent it's just like when you go after public schools like you know going after the public schools does not mean if you send your kids to a public school that you're necessarily a bad parent <laughs> going after the universities does not mean that if you got a bachelor's degree that you're a dumb dumb right <laughs> and we have to disjoint these things from each other we need to move them apart from each other and have the conversation of okay there have to be better ways of doing these things and they're actually out there you know, and, and like any kind of product, the initial users tend to be weirdos, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like the weirdos, I hate to go to the Uber example or the Airbnb examples because they're so trite and anodyne at this point, but like 
the weirdos who'd get into a stranger's car or stay at a stranger's house mm -hmm. when these companies first started were tended yeah. to be strange people, yeah. right? Well, the example that I've written about before is social media. Mm -hmm. Like I've called it the early adopter pro problem with social media is that the people who are most likely to join a new social media, I think this has slightly changed the calculus and the math on this has changed in the last calendar year, but like you're in 2017 and you're the group of people that are not allowed to be on Twitter anymore. You're probably like a particular <laughs> like cadre of people and like, yeah, okay, like good luck joining that. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason like 4chan was a, has been able to exist as long as it has, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, early adopters tend to be a little weird. I think the sales cycle, if we want to call it that, for alternatives, whether they're structured alternatives like programs and credentials or they're less structured alternatives like just going out and doing a gap year, the sales cycle for these things that are alternatives to higher education or to university in particular, these are just really long sales cycles. And it just takes years and years for these things to develop. I've seen the trends move and move in the right direction. Yeah. Um, it's funny. We, so we're taping this today on September 16th. Right before you came into the studio, we had Larry Arn, who's the president of Hillsdale College. In, uh, and I posed a, a similar question to him. Um, w w there is something beautiful and possibly good about a classical liberal arts education where you read the, the, the ancients all the way from Aristotle to like Heidegger. And, and you, you actually get a robust, like well-rounded liberal arts education. I think it's primarily an elite product, but let's put a concrete number to it. What percentage of Americans should get a classical liberal arts degree? Classical liberal arts degree in particular Wow, uh, I'm I'm gonna punt that question. I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> that's the thing, right? I mean, in my mind, it's vanishingly small, like one yeah. percent, yeah, maybe. Yeah, very, very, very small. Um, and and, elite... and for them, it's a consumption good too. Mm -hmm. It's not even really a credentialing good. Mm -hmm. These are people who this is something they're going to do anyway. Mm -hmm. So might as well as they might as well as pick up a credential along the way. Yeah. So, I, I mean, when we talk about uh, an excellent education like that, fundamentally, like you said, behind what you're saying, if we were to put it in, you know tech startup terms it's not scalable yeah you can't you might my, my colleague michael recently put it well to me like the ideal outcome is you have an aristotle for every like alexander the great right yeah but every kid you can't have an aristotle for every kid yeah if you can find a way to do that great if we actually break down the pedagogy research we break down the education research the vast majority of excellent education comes from direct tutelage right so if you had some kind of system where you had experts that would actually directly tutor people on the classics or directly tutor people really on almost anything, that's going to be a far superior model to what we've got going on right yeah. now. Well, but, and this goes to Eric Weinstein's point, you also run into the subsequent problem, which is that if you create people whose only like goal in life is to also be a philosophy professor and every philosophy professor trains five of them, you're going to eventually enter a Ponzi scheme where you need to create a whole bunch of universities to make sure these people are employed. Yeah. And that, that's exactly what we see in graduate universities, right? I, I remember I, I, I studied philosophy, right? And I remember coming across this postmodern, uh, postmodern journal abstract generator online years ago. <laughs> it's probably still out there. Uh, this Pomojo, uh, uh, abstract generator and it would just create gibberish <laughs> and the gibberish would sound like a postmodernist uh, journal abstract yeah. so postmodernism kind of is this where you have these people who have studied these power structures and then you have people who study the, the power structures the power structures the people who study the power structures yeah. and it's just people studying power structures all the way down creating new 
little grievance studies yeah. so that they can employ each other. It's the overproduction of elites question, yeah. right? And you certainly see this in academia. You've even seen it in some of the sciences, unfortunately. Uh, you certainly see it in liberal arts academia. You're, you've seen it in some of the sciences, unfortunately. Uh, there, there's a famous incident, I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now, actually, where some mathematicians wrote up a completely gibberish paper <laughs> and submitted it to a journal, and it was accepted, <laughs> like a fairly elite journal. And that that goes to the point of you you can't overproduce the elites. I think in an ideal world, there's just many fewer universities. They're highly, highly specialized. A very specific kind of weirdo tends to go to them. Like the people, when you're talking to that room of 100 students, the people who raise their hands, I tell those students, great, you should go become professors. Yeah. And out of 100, though, you can't have all 100 become professors. You probably can't even have 10. Yeah, you probably can't even have 10 become professors. Maybe one. Like, that's probably how the number has to be sustainable. I mean, you know, when you're... you're, If you have jungle in front of you and you're creating a garden, like, you start with, like, hacksaws and eventually get down to scissors. Like, I would remove three-quarters of the seats in four-year universities in American life without even thinking about it. That'd be my hacksaw. And then I'd like more narrowly tailor from there. Yeah, the, um, way, the way we can actually realistically think about this is if you were to go down a list, let's go state by state and go down the list of all the universities in that state, what percentage are you just going to nix? Yeah. And yeah, it's probably 75%, right? A lot of these universities, they originally existed to teach one or two specific things and then they became more or less Ponzi schemes for the like, kind of i'd say like barely in the third quartile students at the at the public schools in the, in the state mm-hmm. and unfortunately a lot of those students go become public school teachers <laughs> so that's that's the thing we we got to look at is how would we consolidate these universities how many of them shut down we are starting to see universities are shutting down they are consolidating that's a good sign yes it's going to put people out of work that's always unfortunate but they can go be HR reps. <laughs> <laughs> they can go be HR people. I don't know. In that case, we might want to keep the universities open. But it's going to be painful. But I, I think we'll get to a, a world where there are, for specific verticals, there are universities who are very good at those things. So like Hillsdale, for example. Hillsdale is very good at many things related to liberal arts education. If Hillsdale went and like poured a ton of money into its uh, computer science program, that probably doesn't make sense, Right. If Hillsdale started like an MBA program, that would be an insane money grab. They shouldn't do that. Yeah. But they should focus on the things that they do well, just like St. John's College does those things well. And the the IVs and the, the IV pluses will always be these sprawling behemoths that are essentially hedge funds with real estate <laughs> attached to them, right? Those, if we can... The national conservative types types like to talk about breaking up big tech. Let's let's break up big university, right? I don't. If, if you can bre- go after those, break uh, that'll up be is impressive. the wrong word. I want to atomize them. Like I, I <laughs> like it's not like I I don't want Harvard to be five Harvards. I want like every single person there to be unemployed for the rest of their life. Like I'm sorry, like well, realistically, other than Adrian Vermeule, like who's a good friend, like he, <laughs> he can have a job. That realistically, like Harvard and MIT sit right next to each other, right? Yeah. There should not be, they, they should not both have in that like whatever square mileage of the Cambridge area, you should not find like two classics departments. There should probably yeah. be one at one of those universities. Noam Chomsky teaches at both. <laughs> yeah, there should be there should be one engineering one electrical engineering department that should probably be at MIT, right? And we just very, very strip these things down, create what's essentially an apprenticeship system 
for academics with maybe a tech transfer office. And I think you're golden at that point. Yeah. So unfortunately, what we're looking at is not uh, an, in, in, uh, an impending society where all these things are about to go wrong. We've been doing things wrong for 50 years. <laughs> and uh, and you have a thesis, uh, and, and I think some of your colleagues do, that things have been wrong since which year? 1970? 1970... 1971. 1971. What went wrong in 1971? <laughs> and how, like colossally screwed are we yeah this is a, a fun if anyone's listening and near a computer they can type in uh wtf happened in 1971.com and it, it, it's just all these charts of all the weird macroeconomic things that happened around 1971 and if you look at the ads on the site it, it's kind of obvious that the person who runs it and i don't know who they are is kind of saying that oh it was us getting off the gold standard right <laughs> that's that's what caused what happened yeah. And I think there's a debate to be had whether or not that was a cause and effect of what happened, right? But you did definitely see that uh, wages and productivity growth became disjointed from each other. Uh, you saw a lot of the inflation effects of the 70s, right? The 70s were the decade of stagflation, although I'm not sure in 10 years we'll be able to say that they were the only <laughs> decade of it. Uh, you, you saw a lot of the, the weird effects that you see going on in America today, they really started around more or less 1971. So there are a lot of debates about what really happened there. You had the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement where all financial contracts would be settled in U.S. dollars, uh, the U.S. getting off the gold standard. You had this decade of inflation that happened. Then you had the Volcker shock around 1982 where you had uh, Paul Volcker came in and tried to get the inflation under control. That He did that by jacking up interest rates of the Federal Reserve. Jacking up those interest rates did get inflation under control. It was really out of control in the, in the late 70s, and you had very little economic growth, so you did have stagflation. But if you're a very capital-intensive organization that, it, that relies on debt in order to uh, continue growing... Inflation tends to be a decent thing for you. It tends to be okay, more or less. Now, to the what are examples of those sorts of organizations? Like a, like a steel steel yeah. mill is kind of right. like a classic example, right? To the extent that the inflation affects the CPI, the consumer price index, that tend that can then be problematic because if you're producing, say, cars and the price of cars is going up too much, the consumers aren't buying them. Well, you selling steel to the car manufacturer ends up eventually slowing down, right? But if you're like taking out a lot of debt in order to build new steel mills. You also have, this is also one of the like bones I would kind of pick with some of the national conservative types in the narrative around American unions. It's like unions are partially responsible for why American steel and manufacturing went over to China. The cost of doing business in America was just insane. And then you have this massive deflationary effect in 1970, uh, 1982 or so. And deflation means that all your debt is going to get a lot more expensive, right? So deflation is good for the consumer. It's not necessarily good for the business. You get this weird effect where you have all these steel mills shutting down. You have a lot of people who are like blue collar workers out of work. Business has to go to China because uh, money looks for yields. It's like osmosis, right? It'll just go where it can to find yields. And that's why venture capital is experiencing a very high yeah, amount of it, investment. It, you, yeah, that's exactly what's going on is all the money all over the world over the last you know, 18 months during the the era of, of the virus that we've been experiencing. Like if you're a rich person in some like second or third tier European country, where are you going to put your money? You're not going to like, maybe you'll put it in like some European stock exchange, but you're not gonna put it in like German bonds. Those have negative yields. 
you're probably going to bring it to the United States and it's either going to go into public equities, which is the massive growth that we've seen in the US stock market, or it's going to go into private equities, which ends up being things like venture capital. So you have this weird effect that happens in 1971. There's a couple debates that can be had. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what's going on, but I think fundamentally one of my colleagues has put it well that there was this cultural shift where there's this search for legitimacy over substance, right? I think maybe the pace of life is part of that because if life is moving very quickly, you need to find heuristics on how to make decisions, right? And you're going to look for signals and credentials and ways of doing that. Unfortunately though, a lot of those credentials, the emperors behind them have no clothes. And you know, or maybe they did at the beginning, but eventually they become an end in and of themselves as opposed to a heuristic. Right, right, exactly. So people fundamentally, again, are, are going to follow incentives and they're going to look for heuristics in order to make decisions. And that has resulted in decades and decades where we have unfortunately largely built a society that is way more focused on legitimacy than it is substance. Now, I think the alpha in that society, the, the, the gain to be found is identifying the substance that doesn't have legitimacy. That's the whole thesis behind what we do. Uh, I think that's the thesis behind what an organization like yours largely does is you want to find people who are not necessarily recognized, not as some grievance group that they might be part of, Mm -hmm. but because of something about them that you can identify that talent way before anybody else does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so you came and spoke to our our fellows um, over the summer. And I I remember it was two weeks before it was I think it was the last weekend of the fellowship. And it was two weeks before our quarterly meeting. And I remember creating an issue for us to discuss at our quarterly meeting that was just it was like utter gibberish. It was like talent identification, venture capital, American moment, mission, Zach Slayback. And I was just like, <laughs> like, and, and, and my, that, that sounds like if I wanted to like somehow hack Google's rankings, yeah. I'm just gonna have a bunch of pages that say things <laughs> like that. Yeah. And, and that's what it was. And, and like Nick, I remember bringing up the issue. He was like, what the hell does this mean? I was like, well, so like what happened was I was, I was listening to you describe what it is you guys do as venture capitalists fundamentally. And I was like, that sounds really familiar. Like that is, it. and again, it's not a perfect analogy because we are in the public sector. We are surrounded by bug men and nepotism reigns high in this town. But ultimately, like the thesis behind a lot of what we do at American Moment is trying to find talent that we believe is systematically undervalued. Uh, and now look, it's different because uh, when you get that question right in the private sector, you make boatloads of money. Uh, when you do it in the public sector, you advance the common good. We and that's why we have donors. But anyway, um, and and so like it was just to to talk through with the team and kind of recontextualize like what is the nature of what we're doing. And I think fundamentally in a very similar business. Um, so I, I I think that's all very interesting. Um, Zach, we we are running out of time, and I, I want to uh, make sure that that I don't end up getting you fired from your job. And so, uh, what uh, can people do to to learn more about the ideas you're talking about? Learn more about you. I believe you're on the, the Twitter machine. Don't follow him on LinkedIn. Um, what, what don't, you... Please don't connect with me on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, I will have deleted my LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, but that those those are high wishes. Yeah, I'm on. I am on. The satanic Twitter, uh, I at Z Slayback or just Zach Z A K Slayback. Uh, you can find me on there. Uh, unfortunately, more active than I would like to be. Yeah. Uh, you can also. Reach I think out your to- tweets are great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, you should retweet them more often. Then. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, you can also reach out to me at Z A K Zach at one five one seven fifteen seventeen fund dot com. Uh, we also 
we, we do workshops there. We do uh, virtual reading groups, things like that. So you can also check out 1517fund.com. If you're interested in working at a startup or have a, an idea that you'd like to get funded, please reach out. Happy to talk to anyone about anything related to what we've discussed today. Fantastic. Uh, well, Zach, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This week, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper on some of the issues we just talked about with Zach on Moment of Truth and uh, highlight a piece that was written uh, in all places at Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, It's entitled, uh, America's Collapsing Meritocracy is a Recipe for Revolt. Um, Now, there is a story that is a very online story, so I won't uh, blame any of you if you don't know it. Um, That happened a couple weeks ago, which was that uh, there was a a TikTok star, I'm going to sound like a boomer here, named Addison Rae, um, who caused a sensation on social media because she um, had uh, been made the UFC, which is the Ultimate Fighting Championship, um, championship. I think social media promoter or something like that, and uh, and, and so this got a ton of uh, of of angry responses because people uh, who had spent four years or even longer in broadcast journalism programs were extremely upset that this TikTok star had gotten the job that they had been promised they would receive as part of the American higher education clerisy, and uh, instead she got it, and uh, I think she had studied broadcast journalism for all of three months, um, and. The piece then goes on to highlight how this existing system of higher education we have cannot last. Look, there's several orders of abstraction on which it's utterly absurd, um, and I'm partial to to a lot of them. Uh, one of the ones that, that Eric Weinstein brings up quite a bit is that we've essentially set up a pyramid scheme where every professor is going to try to train 10 or 20 or 30 over the course of their life. And then where are those 30 supposed to go? You can only replace the one. And so we have a need to create ever more higher education jobs at all times in order to sustain the continuing growth of the population of professors. And that's why you see very messed up situations at most of our colleges and universities where the teaching assistants and the grad students are essentially living like modern serfs. They're not paid anything because there's so many of them in every domain. There simply aren't enough jobs in academia. And we've even reached saturation point in the number of colleges we can have, which should be you know, uh, much less than, uh, I mean, we have so many of these and we should have vastly fewer. Um, that's one level of abstraction, which it's bad. Then it's bad on the level of the students. We have these kids that we're indebting, preventing from uh, being able to easily raise families and have children. Uh, we're extending their adolescence by four or eight or 12 years. Uh, and we're essentially preventing them from being able to live normal adult lives for jobs that don't really require much more of an education than an apprenticeship. Uh, and then there's also the societal outlays, um, which is the degenerate cultural influences that higher education has on our young people, turning them into civilizational radicals, into arsonists, into people who hate their family, hate God, hate their society, and hate the world, and so will enact their primal neuroses upon us all. This system cannot last. And if the collegiate system in the United States is to continue to exist, then I would bet the country will collapse before it does, because you can't have a nation's elite uh, raised up through these systems, with all of the baggage that come into them, 
who can be noble patrician leaders of this country. And so ultimately, this is why we don't support the broken system of credentialing we have in the United States here at American Moment. Uh, if you come to us and you say, hey, I don't have a college degree. Is that okay? Can I still be involved? We will say yes. Uh, and enthusiastically. So if, if anything, we're more interested in renegades and dropouts, to use the 1517 fund language, than we are in people who went to all the right schools, have all the right degrees, got all the right grades. Ultimately, base of the conservative movement, the Republican Party, this populist nationalist movement we seek to help grow and support, well, they're not people with four-year degrees, or if they have them, they didn't go to very fancy schools. They did not go through the existing system of priestly class distinction that we have in American society, and we have a responsibility to those people. Frankly, those people have a lot more wisdom than most of the ruling class here in Washington or in the ivory towers. So highly recommend you check out this piece. Again, it's called America's Collapsing Meritocracy is a Recipe for Revolt. It was written by Paul Musgrave. And you can find it on Amcan and along with everything else we have cooking here at American Moment. We have events upcoming that are going to be a ton of fun. Um, we have all the backlog of this podcast. We have other pieces on Amcan. And you can also find out more about what we do in our mission. Reach out to us if you have any questions. And please make sure to rate and review this podcast. If you rate it five stars and write a question in your review, we'll be sure to answer it on the show. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.